Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm here today with Henrietta Harrison to talk about her new book, The Perils of Interpreting, The Extraordinary Lives of Two Translators Between Qing China and the British Empire. Henrietta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's exciting to be here. I'm glad. So we'll start with the traditional, actually a modification of our traditional first question here on the podcast. Could you say a little bit about how you came to this book? How did this book come about? So I've been, ever since I started working on China, I've been really interested in the province of Shanxi um, in northern China. And I was, so I wrote a book about um, a Confucian school teacher there. And then um, I wrote a book about a Catholic village. And when I was doing the Catholic village, I spent a lot of time in the archives in Rome, in the Vatican archives, the archives of the Propaganda Fide, the um, Congregation for the Evangelization of the Peoples. Um, And I found this absolutely wonderful character, Jacobus Lee, who is in this book as Lee Tzibiao. And I became fascinated by him and and I discovered, I found his letters um, about being the interpreter for the McCartney Embassy. And he was a priest in Shanxi, but I could not find any way in which he had ever been um, uh, attached to the village I was studying. In fact, he, he never seemed to have visited the village at all. And I was struggling with this problem because I was longing to get him into the book. And I was talking, in fact, to Emma Rothschild, who obviously is a specialist in European microhistory and has written a lot of very innovative microhistories. And she said to me, but he sounds like he might be interesting enough to have a book of his own. And, you know, European historians might be interested in this character who was a Chinese person living in 18th century Europe. Um, And so I sadly removed him from the book about Catholics where he didn't fit. And I thought, well, I'll just write a little book about Li Zibiao, about whom there's not all that much information. And 10 years later, I was still working on Li Zibiao because once I started thinking about the McCartney embassy, everybody, and you'd start about interpreting for for Lord McCartney, everybody asks you about George Thomas Staunton. That's what everybody knows is this little boy, this little English boy who went to the Qing court. Um, And I thought, well, I'll add him in because he's cute. You know, it'll be really nice to have a, such a charming, cute character in my book. And, you know, I'm just an 11-year-old at the Ching Court. It'll be amusing. And then I became more and more fascinated by George Thomas Staunton. Well, what had been a, a, a biography of Li Zibiao turned into a biography of him and George Thomas Staunton and of the two people who were the interpreters of the McCartney embassy. And, and then the second half of Staunton's life, which was going to be one chapter, just grew and grew and grew um, because he turned out to have a quite fascinating later life. So, so that's really how I came into this project. I love that George Thomas Staunton started out as a chapter about him as a boy, because of the book, he really, as, as you said, he grew and grew and grew, and he really does take a, a quite a substantial third of the book is really following him when he's no longer small and cute. 
<laughs> when he's all grown up. Um, but I'm very sorry that Lizabiao was removed and so very glad he got his own, his own half of a book. Um, so this book opens with, um, as you just sort of you know hinted at there, one of the most famous moments in the history of China's encounter with the West, the meeting of George McCarty and the Tianlong Emperor. Um, and as you say in the book, when we talk about this story, of which most of us are, you know, many of us are quite familiar, um, the Tianlong Emperors really always dominated the scene and how we tell the story. But you in this book really reorientate us forcing us to look instead at the interpreters. Uh, so for listeners who might not be so familiar, though, with the McCartney mission, I'm wondering if you can set the scene for us. Why is this mission so important? And why was it so important for you to reorientate us, to focus on these interpreters instead? Okay, so the McCartney mission is very commonly regarded as the beginning of Sino-British relations. That's just a very classic um, vision of um, China's history, that, uh, that the British, inspired by the Industrial Revolution and discoveries, um, set off to bring a, an embassy to, to China, to this unexplored land, um, and they, they have to go there um, to do this. And, and then that embassy fails, and they try again in the Amherst Embassy in 1816, and that fails too. And thus, it, it's only when Britain is denied formal diplomatic relations through these embassies that Britain enters the Opium War and is, is, is kind of compelled to um, go to war with China um, in the 1830s. And that's that story clearly is a, starts life as a self-justificatory story um, about, about Britain and what it's doing. However, it then gets picked up by revolutionaries in China who use it as a critique of the Qing. They look at the Qianlong Emperor and think that he entirely failed to recognise that um, the Industrial Revolution and the potential of British imperialism, and he just did not understand all this, and thus he rejected, foolishly rejected the British Embassy and modern diplomatic relations, and behold, a hundred years later, we have the fall of the Qing dynasty, or the gradual collapse of his dynasty. So that that story is, um, it has never seemed to me a particularly convincing story, but I never thought about it very much. You can, one can easily see the political, the political drive of this story. But once you start to look at, once I started to actually read the archives of the embassy, I found that really this wasn't what was going on at all. Um, for one thing, the archives were published twice. Um, and a, a small selection, which really fit with this story, was published in the 1920s. Then the 1990s, a big set of archives, which is what the archives that a lot of this book is based on, were published by um, about, around the McCartney Embassy by the number one archives in Beijing. And those are once you look at those, you see that the Qianlong Emperor is extremely concerned about potential British military threat. You see that the kowtow issue is nothing like as important as it appears to be. In fact, 
after a certain point in the embassy, it's not discussed at all. So it's it turned out that the um, the classic story that, that Lord McCartney comes and that the emperor, he f- refuses the proper rituals for China and that the emperor therefore refuses to respond is, is um, and, and, and therefore the Qing dynasty fails to appreciate Britain's industrial power and imperial might. This story is, is simply not a very good description of what actually was going on in the embassy. Uh, but it's a story that's had huge staying power because it was so built into um, both British ideas of Britain's imperial history and revolutionary ideas of China's revolutionary history. Um, so I think it was really ripe for some reconception um, in terms of what was actually going on. No, absolutely. And who better, I suppose, then to to give you an insight into what was going on than those doing the interpreting, <laughs> those those who were really involved with what was going on. Yes, and so obviously, when you when you're in the interpreting, you've got the the real people. So, um, and what they actually think is happening at the time, and you also start to think about who they are speaking to. So, Song Yun, for example, becomes a major player. Song Yun, who I mean, is not is hardly in existing narratives of the McCartney embassy but is the person who speaks most to McCartney um, and who has just come down at the time of the embassy from Russia, from the Russian border where he's been um, negotiating the addendum to the second commercial treaty of Kyakta with the Russians. So we're not in a world where the, um, the, the Qing don't at all understand negotiating with, with, with Western powers. They do it. And Song Yun has been doing it. And he then comes down and we don't know why, because there's a lot that we're not hearing um, about this story. But he's the one who's dealing with the British. And actually, it's from reading the Chinese archives very closely with all the British archives that you can work out who the British are talking about. And once you can work out who the British are talking about, you can then feed that back to the, to the, to the Chinese um, writings of the people concerned, and, and Song Yun was 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 quite prolific. As someone who who works on Manchus, <laughs> the Manchus and Manchu language writing, uh, thank you for mentioning Song Yun. <laughs> He's quite known um, in my circles, but as you say, not so much in terms of the McCartney mission. Um, so, thinking about um, you know the people who are involved, the people who are really there. Um, so, what? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> No, no, go go ahead. So, so I, I clearly have come come into that, that we, and then this whole book is in fact then about um, uh, the two people who are actually interpreting, and one of them is Li Zibiao. So this is this um, Chinese man from Gansu, from Uwei, then called Liangzhou in Gansu, um, who's been off in Italy studying to be a Catholic priest. And he was the adult, so he, um, at this stage, and he's doing most of the interpreting for the embassy. And it was his letters, as under the name Jacobus Lee, that I'd found in Rome, which describe how the interpreting actually worked and what he was doing. And then, of course, there's a the small child, George Thomas Staunton, who's tremendously famous because his father wrote the standard account of the embassy and really played up his son's role because he was trying to get him a job at the time 
working a very, very well paid job working for the East India Company. So, so we've got these two interpreters and they're the people who the story turns, turns around. Absolutely. So turning around them, then, in the start of the book, um, when you open with these, you know, two interpreters, you really chart their early education, their early life. And you note, you know, in, in turns, right, you, you take us through uh, Lisa Biao Jacobus Lee first, and then we then we read about George Thomas Staunton's early life. Um, and you note in the book that they both had really different kinds of education, both in terms of different from each other, but also from their immediate peers. They were set apart from you know any of their contemporaries pretty much immediately. Um, so could you take us through this a little bit? How and where were they both educated and what was so um, unique about both of their educations? Yes, and I think this is actually quite, this is a book about interpreters and the history of interpreting. And I think this somewhat unique background is quite similar to other interpreting stories. And you get similar kinds of stories if you look at Natalie Rothman's studies of Venetian interpreters, for example. So Lidzbjörg um, was born into a Catholic family in, in Gansu, and he, his family are quite elite. Um, his uh, nephew becomes a Jinshu degree holder, so passes the top, up to the top level of exams eventually. Um, and he had, up until age about 10, a, 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 a normal classical Chinese sort of traditional education, one assumes. At that point, um, a visiting Chinese person who was a Catholic priest, um, Guo Yuanxing from Shanxi, turns up in Gansu and he has a big project on to send boys to study in Italy in a college for Chinese in Naples, which is where he himself has been trained. So this isn't a, this isn't set up by the Jesuits. In fact, its foundation is kind of anti-Jesuit. And the idea is that Chinese people will go and evangelize in China. Um, and Li Zipiao's father, who's clearly by this stage has, um, he has an older son who's got children of his own. It's a large family. Li Zipiao is many, many years younger than his oldest brother. And his father decides that this boy, age 11, is going to head off to um, Naples to study to be a Catholic priest, um, which is what happens. He goes with a group of, um, a small group of boys who, who travel down to Macau and then by boat to France and then down from France to Marseille and then by boat again to, to Naples. And they end up at this rather extraordinary establishment in Naples. So <laughs> Naples at this stage is the king, empire, so is the capital of the kingdom of the two Sicilies. It's a capital city. Um, Southern Italy, of course, is an independent state at this point. And um, it's a magnificent city and much of it's there to still today. I mean, one of the amazing things about this book was going to the archives in Naples, um, the archives of what's now the um, Oriental University of Naples, um, which holds letters from the Chinese priests, because what is now the Oriental University of Naples began its life as this college for training um, priests from the Chinese and Ottoman empires. So Li Zibiao turns up there, but he's considerably younger than the other boys. He's about 11, and they're 16 to 18 upwards. And the result of this is that his best friends are not the other Chinese boys, though he continues to speak Chinese with them. There's kind of Chinese dormitory life. But 
he, um, his best friend is the Duke of Valimezzana, the son of the Duke of Valimezzana, um, Giovanni Maria Borgia, um, who he's still writing to in, um, at the end of his life in Shanxi many, many years later. Um, and he, with, because this college for Chinese has, has made it, is making a living by taking paying students and it's become a kind of classy private school for the sons of the top-level Neapolitan elite um, and, and aristocracy, plus these Chinese boys. Um, and so um, Li Zipiao has a classic European humanist education. Giambattista Vico is a Neapolitan. This is really, really classic. Um, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, philosophy, uh, theology, metaphysics, um, from a really, really top class, um, uh, you know, his, his, his teachers publish books that are, that are influential. He ends up as a, as a very excellent speaker of Italian. He is, of course, of all the Chinese students, he's probably the best that they almost ever had because he started so young, whereas many of the Chinese students came in at about age 18. And in fact, the, those, those older students who often also came from elite backgrounds because cl social class mattered a lot in Naples and the people recruiting students for the college in China knew that. And so they didn't, they didn't, they tried to avoid sending people from poor backgrounds. So you get some quite highly educated boys from Beijing and from Fujian. And those boys do the Chinese teaching. Uh, initially, they've had Chinese teachers, professional, a ch professional Chinese teacher. But by the time he was there, he's also, and they're doing kind of rather basic efforts at exam education. I mean, they, they don't invent a new way of teaching Chinese school children. They just use what's there. So that's his, that's his education, which is really, really good on the normal European education. Whereas bizarrely, um, George Thomas Staunton, um, who's the English boy, misses out on this classic elite European education because his father has been, is a passionate fan of Rousseau and um, has read Emile and is really inspired by this idea that what you should do is you should educate your child entirely separate from the world and he will naturally absorb things. Moreover, his father, despite being Irish and Protestant had been educated in a Catholic seminary in France. So he also was a very good Latin speaker. So he required his, so he, so, and he believed in learning languages by total immersion. So he required the child, the poor little George Thomas Staunton to speak Latin from the age of four or five to him all the time, which involved a lot of unhappy small child at the early stages. But he, they managed to get over that by his father putting his hand in the fire when the child wouldn't do what he wanted, which seems like the most appalling kind of punishment. Um, and then... Um, but then they employ... So, and, and this individual teaching with an emphasis on language and botany. So he spoke to the child in Latin. Then um, he thought he'd find a Greek teacher, someone to speak to George Thomas in Greek. Um, and if, there aren't any Greek speakers in England. So they find a German, um, someone who actually ends up on the McCartney embassy, Johannes Huttner, um, who, can, who can nominally speak Greek. I'm not sure he actually could speak Greek. But he's a very, very good Latin speaker. Um, and they have various tutors, but they don't let the little boy associate with other children his age. 
So until he's 16, he really has almost no um, contact with other children. So, and he doesn't go to school. He does spend some time with his, there are probably financial reasons for this as well. There was a period where his father didn't have very much money for paying for schooling. So he does spend some time, he's fortunate to have a wonderful summer holiday one year with his cousins. Um, where they all do chemistry and Latin and Greek. And his great passion is mathematics. He really enjoyed mathematics. Um, and he's just studying on his own. So then when the McCartney embassy is, is, um, is started, his father thinks, yes, right, my boy is going to learn Chinese. He is going to be able to do this and become an interpreter um, for Chinese. And so he starts to have him have Chinese lessons. Well, actually, many of the British think they'd like to learn some Chinese from the... the, the um, the, these Chinese priests who they've now found studying in Naples, um, but um, the other English don't make anything like as much progress as this very multilingual 11-year-old, who's obviously at a better age and also more amenable because it's not Li Zibiao who had a very nice character who was teaching them. It's Ke Zongxiao, who's another Chinese Catholic priest, and he's from Beijing, so he has the correct accent, but he has a very bad temper. Um, and if you're a small child with a teacher with a very bad temper, sadly, you just live with it, whereas the adults were not prepared to stomach this for very long. And so that there's a really quite limited adult learning of Chinese, whereas um, little George Thomas gets quite good for an 11-year-old. You described you described George Thomas Daunton as poor little George Thomas Daunton, and that was my dominant feeling reading about his life, um, just surrounded by these older, so many older teachers and tutors, and yes, quite uh, aggressive teachers on on the ship on the way there, just surrounded by you know, I felt like his father was trying to cram so much knowledge into his poor little head. Um, and he's so alone for so much of the time. Many people who met him at the time felt that way. <laughs> um, in fact, one of them said that to talk to him said that his father was a, having seen the poor child, said that his father was a demi maniac. <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is such an extraordinary I mean I'm for both of them for both Lisa Biao and George Thomas Danton such an a, a, an unusual um, upbringing and background but you know as you were describing you know all of the different people there are many different interpreters or teachers with varying degrees of proficiency in various languages sort of all around um Lisa Biao and, you know, George Thomas Staunton, but also McCartney. Um, so how is it then that Lee, Lisa Biao, ends up being McCartney's interpreter and indeed his only interpreter? How did, how did that happen? Because there were certainly other choices, other options. How is it that he becomes the one? Yes, well, so that I think that's a really important part of it, because there's been a kind of idea that there just weren't very many interpreters. And this was kind of played to by McCartney and George Leonard Staunton, the father of the, um, at the time. But it simply isn't true. There were all sorts of people in the trade and in one way and another with a whole variety of different skills. What, but interpreting is, and this is a big point of the book, interpreting is a political activity. Because when you interpret, you can't just say what that person said in another language, especially not in language, two languages as different as Chinese and English, and when you're doing it um, uh, consecutively. So you're listening to a usually quite lengthy chunk of speech, um, and then 
putting that into another language. So the interpreter is always making decisions, always um, having an impact on what is said. And indeed, most people who've practiced, I did quite a lot of interviewing of interpreters for this project. And almost everybody says that unless you prepare the text in advance, you're not going to get everything, you're going to miss a significant amount. And um, so, so what McCartney minded about was having an interpreter who was on board with his politics. And Leeds Biao seemed okay for that because he was not attached to the British East India Company. And I think one of the problems with how we've looked at the McCartney embassy is we've tended to see the McCartney embassy as um, the British versus the Chinese. And what we've failed to appreciate is the British didn't agree when they were at home. There were all sorts of different interests and agendas and um, this is true of politics more broadly. In fact, when I was researching for the embassy, um, somebody told me that this is Mrs. Thatcher had in fact refused to have the Foreign Office interpret for her with Russia because she felt they had an agenda. So there's this kind of this kind of attitude is really present in the book um, and in this, these events where um, McCartney does not want the British East India Company with their agenda interpreting for him because he is representing the British government who are trying to get control over this mammoth, incredibly powerful, um, horrendously corrupt, in their view, corporation. And Li Zibiao, of course, has an agenda, but his agenda is Catholics in China, and that's not an agenda that McCartney feels is problematic. Interestingly, McCartney, you might think that McCartney as an Irish Protestant would be anti-Catholic, but he's not anti-Catholic. Um, he, in fact, built a Catholic church for his tenants at one point in his career. He never provided a Protestant church for anybody. He thinks that everybody, God should be worshipped just as God has decided in his many countries, very enlightenment view. So he's, he wants an interpreter who's going to share his beliefs. And he thinks, or at least, at least his attitude on the East India Company, and he thinks that he can win over Li Zibiao on the long voyage, make him into a friend. And indeed, Li Zibiao does become a friend. He's still writing to McCartney after there were, there were letters from him in the Northern Ireland Public Record Office addressed to Dominum McCartney, Londinium, Lord McCartney, London. Um, so, so that he's hoping to use this particular line. And he does not want... Also, so he doesn't want the East India Company and he doesn't want the Portuguese because the Portuguese are the big threat to the British in China. The British are hoping always onwardly that they might get control of Macau. They feel that Portugal has got one up on them. The Portuguese are defending Macau. It's very important to McCartney that what he is saying is not being transferred through Portuguese um, people, missionaries in Beijing. Now, he would have accepted the French missionaries in Beijing as interpreters. In fact, that's what he hoped for. And he thought because of the French Revolution, which was very anti-Catholic, the French won't be particularly in favour of the French state. However, the Qianlong Emperor had appointed one of the Portuguese missionaries. And I think also they had quite a lot of trouble on the way up. And it seems implausible that they didn't realise. So Li Zibiao had declared that he was English, but it seems implausible that they did not realise over time, that he that the people closely with the embassy that he was in fact Chinese, and in fact his brother was um the was a was a 
Qing general subordinate to a, a what's a deputy general, a major general, a subordinate to Fu Kang'an, one of the leading Manchu um, politicians. So it seems implausible that there is no realization that this guy is Chinese. And in fact, Li Zibiao does say they knew I was Chinese, but they let him go ahead. And they, in the end, seem to have decided that, that so ultimately, the Qing didn't give the McCartney embassy almost anything they asked for, but they did let hit them have Lee as interpreter. And I think they felt that Lee was, was quite sufficiently under their control um, and playing for them too. And indeed, that's kind of Lee's own perspective, which is that McCartney is being very difficult and that the Chinese are being quite reasonable, being very reasonable and generous to him. So you've taken us beautifully, you know, from from Europe, through the long voyage, through Macau, and then up to Beijing, right? And your description of all of the other options they had, in, in some ways we see some of these various options on this long journey as they're sort of getting there. And as McCartney is making a friend of Lisa Biao, bringing him onto his own side. And this sort of takes us into the middle of the book then, um, where we spend quite a few chapters on the mission itself and where we really see some of what you just hinted at really come come to bear, in particular your the point that you beautifully made, interpreting is a political activity. And we see when you discuss the mission, we see how Lee is viewing his own task as an interpreter. Um, and you point out, for example, that he's really taking on the role of mediation you point out that in pursuit of mediating, Lee had no qualms about stating the precise opposite to McCartney's opinions <laughs> in an effort to, to come to an agreement. Um, and he also seems to have had no qualms, at least initially, in trying to further some of his own causes, particularly around uh, you know, persuading the Tianlong emperor to allow Christians within China to live peacefully. So there's a lot going on with the mission and in this part of the book. But could you just sort of explain you know, the kind of interpreting that, Lee, that we see Lee doing? What, what is he doing? So uh, he describes... So uh, my feeling is that his... Uh, my interpretation is that it changes a bit. So he starts off... He hasn't. He initially has hoped that he's going to, be, and he's been told by McCartney that he's been going to be a secret interpreter. He's just going to stand by McCartney's side and understand and explain to McCartney. And it rapidly becomes obvious that that's not going to be possible. So he's actually thrown out there, actually speaking on behalf of the British, and it's extremely dangerous. And he's very much aware that being a spokesman for this British embassy is very dangerous. He, you know, it's illegal to have gone abroad to study. Um, and he has to explain what the British want and try and get at every level a kind of negotiated settlement. Um, unfortunately, the Qing officials he's dealing with are quite positive about this too. They, they want the British to go to the Chenlong Emperor's birthday celebrations and that they, they too are working towards this. Um, so at early stages, I mean, there must have been a lot of it that was kind of like being a tour guide where people are, arrangements are being made. There's a lot of, you know, who's going to be in what boat, but you're also quite a senior person because the Qing um, ritual regulations about embassies include a quite major role for the interpreter. So McCartney, so Li Zibiao is the third ranking person in the embassy 
from their point of view, he gets sort of third ranking boat, third ranking sedan chair instead of being put in a cart like the rest of the English, joggled around uncomfortably. Um, so he has a um, so he has quite a powerful position. And then what he's supposed to do is to get both sides to agree. So when they have disputes like the the the, the um, Qing offer Lord uh, the British a particular mansion as a, as a residence for the embassy. The British are hoping to get a permanent residence in Beijing at this time. So they um so they don't want it. They want something in the city rather than something out in um near the Yuanming Yuan. Um and it's um and that's when um Li Zibiao gets called out and asked to explain what's going on and says, oh, no, 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 he doesn't say that there's anything wrong with this particular house. It's just a blah, 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 um, and trying to smooth everything over. So some of the time when he's negotiating, the two parties aren't really even in the same room. He's listening to one lot and then going and, and conveying their ideas to the other and then discussing and agreeing a line and going back. Um, and that's what he does. And that's what he seems to be. So they spend a lot of afternoons when they go up to Chengde. So the emperor is out beyond the Great Wall um, at, at what's now Chengde um, palaces. And in the, in the afternoons, they, there were lots of rituals and birthday celebrations going on, but they also go out riding in the hills with Songyun. Um, and it seems quite likely that this is the moment when... Um, Li Zibiao, who is also there, has the has the freedom to actually manage to put his own item, which is for Catholic toleration, into the British demands. And we know that he did this both because he says so in his letter to Rome, and because the Chenlong Emperor says no to it. And and that later once so then they're after the embassy, they're traveling down south, they're going south by boat. Song Yun is there, and Song Yun has been tasked with getting them to getting McCartney to okay all the things the Qianlong Emperor has said no to and to accept all these. And, um, of course, there's a very nasty moment when the Qianlong Emperor has said no to a demand that the British didn't make about Catholic toleration. Um, and Song Yun, who has himself also been trained in interpreting and probably had some idea of what was going on, um, smooths the whole thing over and says, oh, well, it was probably just a mistake. Um, and, and McCartney is quite in, engaged by this. So, of course, it's possible that McCartney is lying and that he had actually okayed. I mean, I, I ceased to believe in McCartney's truthfulness after this um, book writing. So I, I, I find all the, all the documents of the embassy much more unreliable than most readers do because he clearly didn't always tell the truth. Um, and it, there's a very interesting letter in the National Archives of Ireland from a relative of his who's being asked to lie by him about something that appears to have happened in the McCartney embassy and is having qualms of conscience. And somebody's writing into him and saying, you know, you really do need to do what he says. He's very wise and he's got a lot of experience. So, so um, and, and anyway, so whatever whatever the case, this was a nerve-wracking moment for Li Zibiao. And after that, I think he switches much more to trying to just interpret what McCartney says. Because after that point, instead of saying Loman, which is what they call Li Zibiao because he's used the English name Plum for Li, um, and then Plum gets into Loman in, in Chinese. Instead of saying Loman said this, that, and the other, they start to say McCartney said this. And they much more frequently say McCartney actually said things. Whereas prior, prior to that, it wasn't. And I think at that point, 
Lee's actually realized, which he didn't realize, he went into it very naive. He's realized the danger of his situation. And it's even been said that, um, so there's even a rumor going around that Fu Kang'an actually had him in and said, we know who you are. Um, and we know who your family is. Um, so just don't, <laughs> don't do anything that's going to cause trouble. So it, there is, um, it's dangerous. And by this stage, he's knowing it. And so I think the kind of tactic he takes on is then to become a more invisible interpreter. But even when he's an invisible interpreter, he's still adjusting um, everything as he goes along um, to make it more acceptable. For example, translating um, Eve, foreigner, barbarian, the, the word that's standardly used for the British, with um, externi which is the Latin for sort of outside people, but it's a perfectly polite way of saying it. He uses a whole lot of very, um, or translating um, gong shun as benevolencia, which has a sort of, so, so what you might call submission, respectful submission, comes into benevolencia. Well, benevolencia of the English king can mean his, uh, obviously, it means his goodwill, which is about right for Gongshun, but it can also mean his generosity from a position above. That's the kind of uh, a, a, an aspect of the English word benevolence. So he's clearly making everything smoother, making it more easier for, for McCartney to agree to all the statements that are being made by these Qing officials. Absolutely. And as you know, you were talking there about smoothing, smoothing, smoothening. <laughs> and that comes through, of course, so, so clearly in, in everything that Li Zibiao is doing when he is <laughs> inserting himself more, more directly or whether he's stepping back and just being invisible. And this style of translation, of course, we also see it in the work that we see George Thomas Staunton doing later on in life. Um, so when, when, of course, we've been where we are in the book and in the story currently, he's still only about 11. <laughs> he then goes on to grow up um, and no longer a child. He then secures a job thanks to the lobbying efforts of his father in the East India Company's factory in Canton. So he, he returns to China and he himself takes up um, the work of interpreting, of translating. And we see smoothing. We see him doing a lot of this work as well, um, smoothening. But at this point in the story, we do have a different style of translation, which comes about from the pen and the work of Robert Morrison. So here we have sort of yet another, you know, different um, style of translation that comes into play. So I wonder if you could take us through some of the differences here that we see between Staunton's own style of translation and that of Morrison, that of, you know, the style that starts to take off. Yes, well, so Staunton has this has this experience of learning languages orally. That's basically how he learns Chinese. He's, he's spoken it all year on the embassy, he'd done lots of interpreting. Then he went back to England with his um, father, but they took a kind of Chinese language exchange. They, 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 they um, paid someone $200, silver dollars, for their son, who was a Mandarin speaker, to come back to um, England. So he's had, and, and, he's, and, and George Staunton then very diligently studies, and he's a very diligent boy, and he's, um, he learns to read and write Chinese as well, though the boy they took back was illiterate. But so he's really learned by immersion and in childhood. And learning by immersion and in childhood is a very particular way you have with a language. And I think those of us who've talked 
Chinese English translation will have met students who are speakers, but who've never done precise translation and thus have difficulty with the exams. Um, and that's what George Thomas Staunton is like. He thinks in Chinese or he thinks in English and he can say these things. And he tends, you know, when he's doing translating business correspondence, it just sounds like 18th century British business correspondence. When he translates the Yongzheng Emperor's sacred edict, it sounds like the values of an 18th century British gentleman, you know, clan and lineage and um, ancestral, your, you know, ancestral clan. It just sounds totally British the way he does it. Um, and then his great friend in life turns up. So, but he didn't. They didn't know they were great friends because George Thomas Staunton, by the you know, is is fairly upper middle class background, and by this stage he's very wealthy. And Robert Morrison comes turns up, and Robert Morrison is the first British, the first Protestant uh, missionary to China, and he's grown up on the back streets of Newcastle, where his father was a maker of boot lasts. Those are the wooden bits you put inside to shape leather boots when you're making leather boots. Um, and M Morrison had been a child labourer in a factory in, in his father's workshop. In his youth, he'd studied incredibly hard. He came from a very Christian background. He got himself into Bible college. And he basically turns up in Guangdong with almost nothing but a letter of introduction to Staunton. And Staunton helps him. But they have their totally different backgrounds. And they're the only two people who are really interested in this stuff they're doing. So Morrison just really plugs away learning Chinese. And he too has learned Latin, but he learned it in school. Um, and he feels that the first task of the missionary, he has to, as a Protestant, the most important thing is that Chinese should have access to the Bible. And in order to translate the Bible, he needs a dictionary. And so actually he spends his more or less his whole career on the dictionary. Um, so his and he believes that with the Bible, um, paraphrase is not OK. You've got to say exactly what it says in the Bible. And he also has a much less sophisticated attitude to language than George. He thinks that there are synonyms, that one word in Chinese means the same thing as one word in English and you just have to find them. Whereas Staunton never thought, he says actually later in life that Staunton says that words are symbols of ideas. And the, the greater the difference between the culture, the more the, the less likely of any synonyms. And between Chinese and English, which are very different cultures, there are really very few synonyms at all. But that's not how Robert Morrison is. Robert Morrison is looking because he's writing a dictionary and a dictionary is all about synonyms. You need the word that means the other word. Um, and so he's it's searching for synonyms. But they're the only two people who are interested in this at all. And moreover, Staunton was never very good at having friends. So he's had this very odd childhood. And actually, he and Robert Morrison do actually really, really get on. They only admit it many years later when Staunton's retired and is in England and presents him with the most spectacularly vulgar um, silver gilt um, ink stand engraved from your affectionate friend. And Morrison is completely overwhelmed. And his thank you letter to Staunton is published by his wife in her memoirs of him as a sort of this important thing that she actually had this affectionate relationship with Staunton, who was of such a different social class. And, and he himself was so humble. And he says this in the thank you letter. So it was it was a complicated relationship, but they they were working together. They, they, they were each other's probably closest lifelong friends who were not actually relatives. And um, so Staunton 
but their translation style is really different. So when Morris so Staunton makes the Chinese sound like British people of the day, and Morrison makes the Chinese people sound absolutely bizarre, basically, because he is going word for word through the Chinese. So I forget the exact details, but at one point he translates Zhonghua, which is kind of China, and that's what Staunton would have written, Middle Flowery Kingdom. And, you know, yes, Zhonghua, yeah, Middle Flowery Kingdom, that is probably the ultimate meaning of those words, but it's not a very normal translation. And he is the person, and I mean, that's when he's really a beginner, and it takes him time, because unlike Staunton, who spoke from childhood, Morrison is an adult when he starts learning Chinese, and it takes him quite a time, and he does eventually probably become the better scholar. He really applies himself to trying to find the real meanings, the deep, what he considers to be sort of the deep, underlying, ancient meanings of Chinese words, which Staunton is extremely dismissive of. He says, well, it may be what it meant Confucius meant, but we wouldn't say that in English, that a word should mean what it meant so many hundreds of years ago. Um, So Robert Morrison is um, produces, even when he gets, as his Chinese gets better, he produces stuff that is more fluent, but it still makes the Chinese sound endlessly exotic, different, strange and alien. Um, And it's totally different. And it's Morrison who goes on to become a teacher because Staunton is socially above being a teacher. He's not going to teach the younger generation of East India Company employees. Whereas Morrison, who comes from a working class background, is perfectly happy being a teacher. And he, he teaches John Francis Davis and the next generation of British sinologists. They are so, I think... You're absolutely, to my mind, at least you're absolutely right to emphasize really the real difference in class backgrounds between them. My most dominant memory of reading Morrison's um, writings was him, his constant concern about money. <laughs> he said he was, you know, quite happy to go off and be a teacher. I'm sure he was just happy for a paycheck. <laughs> it's my most dominant memory of him, just continual concern about money and finances and where's the money going to come from. And most, much of it came from Staunton. So mm-hmm. Staunton then manipulated the East India Company Canton factory into backing for example, they paid for the for the Malacca school that Morrison sets up. Mm, the fascinating connections there, mm. and as we're we're sort of with all these fascinating connections and the very different you know styles of translation and changing styles of translation driven by so much more than just the language. There's a lot going on in this latter in this latter part of the book. Um, to return to Li Zibiao just for a second, we see him go into hiding and have a you know relatively successful career as a missionary. Um, we see George Thomas Staunton. He returns to China as part of the Amherst mission. Then we follow his uh, mixed political career, <laughs> if I can call it that. Um, and finally, the book takes us to the Opium War. And this is another one of those, you know, very key moments in in our telling of Chinese history. Um, and one of the things you point out in the book about the Opium War that is, you know, usually so often emphasized is the real lack of knowledge uh, among political decision makers in China of Britain at this moment. Um, there seem to just be far fewer informants. There are f- no real interpreters. There's a real lack of any, again, informed knowledge 
you know, the men like Liza Biao and George Thomas Staunton, they're not at the table. They're not there. <laughs> so I feel terrible because, you know, we're rushing this last part and there is so much going on. But with regards to this issue, this lack of knowledge, um, what is your sort of explanation for it that you come to in this book? Where did the men go? Where did the interpreters go? Where did the knowledge go? Well, so this is, I mean, actually, this takes us back a bit because it seems to me that it became simply too dangerous. But as British imperial power in India expanded, the threat to the South China coast expanded, um, part of the Qing response was to try and get a grip on all the intermediaries, that Qing officials would have total control over what was going on. And that made it spectacularly difficult to be the kind of people who were living like Li Zibiao, like George Thomas Staunton, in between these two cultures. And because it also has an overflow effect on on Catholicism. Um, And we have a whole series of Catholic persecutions under um, the Jiaqing Emperor um, and there's also a lot of trouble with people who are too close to the British on the South China coast. And um, there's quite a lot of the book is, is, is the stories of a couple of um, George Thomas Staunton's friends. So um, one of them, Uya Chang, and another, uh, Li Yao. And these are, um, these are men who are about the same age as, as George Thomas Staunton, almost certainly became friends with him when he first arrived back in China. Um, in 1799, and they get sent into exile. And Liao's case is particularly fascinating because Liao, when he ended up in prison, wrote to Staunton almost every day from prison. And there were these tiny, scrappy little notes which are preserved in the um, public record office in the National Archives in London um, with all his sort of instructions to Staunton. You should say this and you should do that. And um, this is it. This is a speech you're going to give. And, um, you know, Leo was clearly quite a dominant personality in all this. Um, but they, they had this. But also his fear about it being sent off to Xinjiang, um, which, I mean, some of the time he's saying, you know, even if they kill me, I still just be so impressed by you and you, you know, you've been so kind to me. And some of the time he's like, if I have to go to Xinjiang, I am going to die of the frost um, and the terrible weather. And, you know, please, please make sure that I can just get exile in um, Guangdong province. Um, So those, and then... To cap it all, uh, the Jiaqing Emperor issues an edict which threatens, roughly speaking, to exile Staunton to somewhere that's not going back to England, but somewhere in China. Basically, it becomes incredibly dangerous to be these people. And once it's become so dangerous, it's clear that there were people who know English. You know, there absolutely are people in this society. There were all sorts of people traveling backwards and forwards to England. But it becomes way too dangerous to admit to that knowledge. So you've got these people down on the south coast in Guangzhou who do know a lot about what's going on. You know, there are all those, I mean, we've always known there are all those Chinese merchants in the Dutch East Indies. You know, those are rich people sending their families to good education, some of them in China. Likewise, the um, the whole merchants um, in, in, in Guangzhou are sending their, you know, have family members in Beijing at court. But you just have to keep a low profile. It becomes way too dangerous to, um, 
to, to admit to the amount of knowledge that some of these people have. And, and then you look at, you know, Pauline Zabiao, who ends up in the most remote. I went to this tiny little village up in the hills of Shanxi. I mean, it's so remote and tiny. And, you know, there's all that knowledge of Europe in this tiny little place with cave dwellings up in, 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 in the Taihang Mountains, or the edge of the Taihang Mountains. It's... Um, uh, basically, it's too dangerous. So it seems to me it's not that there wasn't the knowledge; it was that it wasn't getting to the um, getting to the core people. And I, my opinion of Lin Zexu enormously improved while doing this project. So I always thought, you know, how on earth could he have done this thing? It was really hopeless. Um, and actually, he was absolutely dedicated, and he actually employed some of these people, and he did start finding out. There's been fantastic work in translation studies in China, which has uncovered all the sort of translations he had made and found, you know, bizarre little copies of sets of translated newspapers and identified them as... Um, works that Lin Zexu was having done. So there's super, super work on him. So that part of the book isn't really my own research, but I think it's really important to end up with that moment where it says Lin Zexu was really, really keen to know, but that knowledge was had been, I think, quite heavily oral, certainly restricted to Manchus in, in Beijing, been very difficult for ordinary Han Chinese to have a good knowledge of that. And those that did have it were too frightened and, and rightly too frightened to become involved with the state. Absolutely. As, as you put in the book, I think you make this point really beautifully at the end. Knowledge is not simply something that spreads and increases. <laughs> it is possible to lose knowledge. It's also possible to make knowledge so dangerous, um, as you just laid out. And as you were sort of describing there, and as you've been doing throughout our entire conversation, you know, you mentioned all of these people, all of these different interpreters. Um, we've met some of them. Um, we see also throughout the book just countless, you know, nameless sailors and seamen who are also and merchants who are also doing traveling. There are just so many stories in this book of people who lived between two cultures. Uh, of course. Lidzo Biao and George Thomas Staunton, but so many others. So as we're coming right to the end of our conversation here, I wonder, um, Henrietta, if you would highlight maybe one other figure, one other individual that you want to mention for listeners. There are so many in the book, but is there one you want to single out that uh, listeners and maybe would-be readers can look out for when they do turn to the book? Well, I've been particularly... Um, thinking recently about someone who was um, He Zhi, so or Ho Chi, um, because I met his descendants this weekend um, who, came to, who came to Oxford uh, with a wonderful photo of him. So Ho Chi is one of the, He Zhi is one of these um, young men about the same age as, same generation as Staunton, almost certainly someone Staunton knew in, in, when he first arrived in Guangzhou. And he... Um, uh, in, at this period in the 1820s, he in fact decamps to England. We don't quite know why, um, but he ends up as the um, farm manager of Elphinstone, who's one of the other um, East India Company merchants. And he inherits that farm when Elphinstone dies and has him buried, has himself buried in two matching tombstones alongside Elf, John Elphinstone. Um, and uh, he goes from being a Chinese comprador, my band sort of type, 
to being an English gentleman. He sends his his son is um, one of the first Chinese people to study in in medicine in Edinburgh, and uh, he he becomes and he his his relatives live an upper middle class British life in the south of England. Um, is with a son as a, as a, as a, one of his sons is a doctor and his daughters. Um, marrying into medical families. And he's a rather wonderful story because, but he's also the kind of person who's really been completely written out of history because we don't really think of Chinese people who settled in um, in Britain and managed to become, when he's mentioned in the census, it's as a, you know, gentleman of means, um, you know, he uh, who managed to make it in mid nineteenth century Britain, and he was clearly a person of tremendous abilities. Um, but I think he he's a and there's this lovely lovely moment when um I, when I looked through Staunton's list of the visitors to his garden, um in his last years, one of the people who turns up is Mr Ho Chi, and I had this lovely idea. Staunton liked growing um uh, tropical fruit, and I you know, had this lovely idea of them sitting and eating longans and mangoes. <laughs> Discussing their past, their their past life, because Mr. Ho Chi is by that stage clearly just a feature of Southern British life, but also an ongoingly a friend and someone who Staunton respects enough to to regard him as a gentleman on the visitors list. <laughs> someone who he respects enough possibly to invite him into the garden to eat fruit <laughs> with him. Um, that would be. He is a fascinating life to add to the extraordinary lives of two translators that you take us through um, in this book. I think you mentioned at the start of our conversation, Henrietta, that you had been working on this book for many, many years. So congratulations on finishing it. (laughs) But of course, with this, um, I have to imagine you are working on other things as well. So what are you working on at the moment? What is inspiring you right now? Well, so I'm kind of polishing this up. There's a, one of these other extraordinary characters who came up in this project was a man called Xu Shizhi, who practiced um, Chinese pulse diagnosis in Naples for three years in the 1770s. Um, so I'm writing a little art and was, and was very influential and actually caused aspects of Chinese pulse diagnosis to become part of the Southern Italian tradition of pulse reading. Uh, because he influenced one of the major teachers at the in the medical school, a man called Domenico Cirillo. So I'm writing a little article about them. But after that, I'm, I'm going on and I'm going to write a book on um, experiences of the 1949 revolution, which is a completely, but it's the book I was going to write before I got detoured <laughs> off the chapter. It was supposed to be the book after the Catholic, so I shall be coming back to where I was originally going to be there. It's been on the university website for very many years with no progress at all, but it's now beginning to progress. <laughs> well, best of luck with that. And again, congratulations on finally finishing the book that was meant to be a chapter. <laughs> Thank you so much for writing the book and for talking with me about it. Thank you very much for having me.